Well, I, I really uh, worked hard to figure out what to teach about. And uh, I felt like Spurgeon, who, uh, Charles Spurgeon, you know, who taught in the 1800s in England, uh, he prepared his message Saturday night before he preached on Sunday. And he would only preach on usually one verse and make a whole sermon out of it. And he said when he was going through the Bible to figure out which verse to preach on, he said every verse screamed to him, pick me, pick me, pick me. I mean, you, you almost can't go wrong if you're preaching from the Bible, right? So uh, I, I chose, uh, originally I was thinking of uh, titling this the, uh, the Unforgivable Sin, which is what Mario advertised uh, this session on. And uh, ended up titling it, Who Do You Say That I Am? And of course, it's Jesus saying those words, Who Do You Say That I Am? And of course, we will get to the unforgivable sin, so it will be covered. So no false advertising. <laughs> uh, but Steve has mentioned this several times in his messages. He just talked a lot about the unforgivable sin a couple weeks ago. Uh, and uh, it's... You know, Steve's always said, what's the most important question we're going to be asked? And, you know, what did you, God's going to say, what did you do with my son when we get to heaven? Here on earth, Jesus Christ asked, who do you say that I am? And it's the most important question that will determine our fate in a, until eternity and how we handle that question. And... Uh, who do you say that I am is in Matthew 16, 13, 16, where we see in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the only way we can know who he is is if the Lord opens our heart. And that's what Jesus is saying there in verse 17 but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. This is the first time in the Bible a human being has acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. Before that, Jesus had casted out the demons, and the demons said, why you are you casting us out? Is our time come, and are you sending us? You know, They knew who Jesus Christ was. Uh, and then, of course, the angels. Uh, that announced the birth, uh, also announced him as you know, Jesus as Lord. But this is the first human being, and Peter acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord. And then Paul follows up in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Let me repeat that. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. But 
And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing that as believers, we have to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. And that's why we sang the song, Jesus is Lord, this morning, because of the importance of that. How many of you have heard of the, the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, there's movie books out there. Well, uh, how many know it from the book or the movie or both? Books, movies? Yeah. Uh, born in 1898, C.S. Lewis, who was the author, became one of the most known literary figures in the 20th century. He abandoned his childhood uh, Protestant upbringing and became an atheist when he was 15 years old. He gave up on God. He said, I'm done with God. Uh, I'm very angry at God for not existing. <laughs> uh, he ended up uh, being a teacher at Oxford University, and he found himself in, uh, in the company of Christian friends who was evangelizing him and challenged him on his atheism. And this is a, a lesson for us, to never stop reaching out to people. The Lord used their influence to draw Lewis to himself. And in his, one of his books where he gave his testimony, uh, C.S. Lewis says, he compared himself to the prodigal son. Pursued by God in spite of his own attempts to resist. And he wrote in his book, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen. Magdalen's one of the colleges at Oxford University, the same one that William Tyndale went to that wrote the first Bible in English uh, that was printed. And night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even so for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, God, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> uh, so I mean, he just couldn't deny God's calling. You know, and uh, as much as he wanted to resist, he couldn't resist. And, and that's what we call in the doctrines of grace, uh, grace uh, irre irrevocable grace. Yeah, you, can't, you can't deny God's calling. As a Christian thinker and apologist, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, many works that influenced his, uh, his uh, legacy, uh, just talked about the Chronicles of Narnia and the Screwtape Letters was another one, but is also his apologetic writings, The Problem of Pain and Mere Christianity. How many have read Mere Christianity? Yeah, it's a great book if you haven't read it. But in it, he wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm... And what foolish people say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. And a lot of the world says that. Oh, he's, he's you know, Jesus loves everybody, and, and, but they don't declare him as God. And they, 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 they want to follow Jesus because of his love. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher because he was claiming to be God. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Of course he was, but he was more than that. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Uh, John MacArthur tells a little joke uh, about two guys uh, in a mental institution and their bunkmates. And the one guy says, I'm Napoleon. And the other guy asks him, well, who told you that? And he says, God did. And he goes, I didn't tell you that. <laughs> By claiming to be God, Jesus Christ left his hearers with only three options. They could discount him as delusional, denounce him as demonic, or declare him to be divine. Or in the words that C.S. Lewis used, a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. There's no middle ground. You know, Jesus says either you're for me or you're against me. There's no neutral position. If you're not for him, you're against him, even if you don't think you're for him, uh, against him. The crowds that flock to hear him would either embrace him as the son of God and the savior of the world, or they would reject him as a dangerous and possibly insane megalomaniac who must be silenced. The New Testament Gospels were written to demonstrate to any reader that Jesus Christ was neither a lunatic nor a liar. I mean, those Gospels were written to us to teach us that Jesus is Lord. Lunatics cannot heal sick people or raise the dead. Frauds cannot perform undeniable, undeniable miracles nor would someone empowered by evil spirits use that power to cast out demons. <clears throat> I'm just double checking where I'm supposed to read some scripture. <laughs> The Bible leaves the readers with only one alternative. The Lord Jesus is the messianic king, the son of the living God. He is the Lord and savior whom God the father raised. And as Ephesians 1.20 tells us, he raised him from the dead, having seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name 
that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Despite the massive evidence to confirm Jesus' deity from his astonishing teaching to his spectacular miracles of his authority over demons and nature, and despite the clear testimony of others that authenticated him, from the Old Testament prophets all the way to the last one, John the Baptist, to God the Father himself, there were many who stubbornly refused to believe in him. Some some thought he was demented, especially when they heard him express the cost of being his disciple. Others flatly accused him of him being demon-possessed, and we're going to see that. In the passage that we're going to look at today, in Mark, we find both of the wrong responses to Jesus Christ. Member of his own family suggested we had lost, he had lost his senses and was acting like a lunatic. Meanwhile, the religious leaders alleged that he was a liar who was undeniably uh, had the powers, his powers came from Satan, not God. But nonetheless, there was a who, those who genuinely followed Jesus, eagerly obeying the will of the Father and listening to the Son. True believers rightly understood that Jesus is both Lord and God. So let's turn to Mark 3 in our Bibles, and I'll read today's passage. Mark 3, verse 20, we'll start at. And I made a mistake when I copied these things into, my, into the notes. I, I, instead of using the English Standard Version, I used the Legacy Standard Version, so... The text might be a little bit different. It's very close to the same. Uh, Verse 20, Mark 3, verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Bezabel, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless first he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, that whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty for an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering him, he said, Who are my mother? Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about, At those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for giving us your holy word, your revelation of the redemption of mankind that you wanted us to know about you so we would believe that you are Lord over all of us, over everyone, and that if we don't put our faith and trust in you, we have no salvation. There is salvation and no other name given but except through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first one, lunatic. The assumption of Jesus' family in uh, verses 20 and 21. It's difficult to imagine that anyone could think that Jesus had lost his mind. You know, when I became a, a new Christian, and I, at, the, at first I didn't know God had opened my eyes, and I'm reading the Bible, and it's all of a sudden making sense to me. And I, I said, wow, Jesus says some very profound things, and it's like, it just, I, can't, I couldn't believe how profound his words were. And I said, this has got to be God talking to us. And, uh, and so that's what uh, I'm saying here. It's difficult to imagine that anyone uh, that saw Jesus, talked to him, heard him speak, would think he had lost his mind. His reason was the most perfect, his logic the most pure, and his preaching the most profound. No one ever spoke like he spoke. And you see that over and over in the Bible when at the end, uh, the, the people that listened said, wow, we've never heard anybody speak like this before with such authority. He spoke with clarity and depth. Whenever he taught, the reaction of the people was always the same. All the people were hanging on to every word he said in Luke 19, 48. But in spite of his popular reception by the crowds who flocked to hear him, certain members of Jesus' family thought he had gone mad. After Jesus appointed the 12 in Mark 3, 13, the, the passage is just before the, what we just read, he came back home to Capernaum, his ministry headquarters. The phrase he went home literally means he went to a house and may refer to the home of Peter and Andrew. As normally happened when Jesus entered the city, the crowd gathered again to such an extent that, the, that they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, could not even eat a meal. The crowd was pressing in so much. They wanted more of Jesus. They wanted more healings. They wanted to hear more about his teachings. His ministry was, of healing was unlike anything the multitudes had ever seen. I mean, he basically healed anybody and everybody. You didn't have to be a believer. Uh, he was, so people were being driven and drawing people in droves from around all of Israel to witness his supernatural power and to hear his extraordinary teaching. And we see that in Mark 3, 7 through 12. It was not uncommon for leading rabbis to have a small band of followers, but no one had ever come close to rivaling the popularity of Jesus. The size of the crowds often created unique challenges. One more, on more than one occasion, Jesus miraculously created food to satisfy the hunger of thousands who followed him. At other times, as people mobbed him along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, remember he had to go out on a boat to talk to the people so he wouldn't get crushed by the crowd and address them from the shore. Either in Capernaum, the crowd overflowed in, 
Earlier in Capernaum, the crowd had overflowed the house where Jesus was teaching, forcing the friends, remember, of the paralyzed man to come through the roof. His friends lowered him through the roof so they could get close and get an audience with Christ. So it gives you an idea of what's going on in Jesus' time. Jesus' miracles, like the healing of that paralyzed man, only heightened the fervor of the eager throngs who openly wondered if Jesus was the Messiah. On this occasion, the multitude was again pressing into the house to such an extent that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even eat a meal. I just can't imagine that crush of people. The throng was so overwhelming that Jesus and his disciples were unable to perform those basic functions. When news about this situation and the throngs reached Nazareth, Jesus' family was shocked and concerned about what they had heard. As Mark explains, when his people, his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him. That phrase, his own people, refers to his immediate family is confirmed by verse 31 later on that we read, which notes that his mother and his half-brothers traveled to Capernaum to find him. Given the oppressive nature of the crowds, the concerns of Jesus' family was for his safety could be understandable. Fearful that he might be in danger, they had left Nazareth and traveled the 30 miles to Capernaum in order to take custody of him. Jesus' family was intent on rescuing him by force, if necessary, from the oppressive multitudes that threatened to smother him as well as from himself. The family's desire to protect Jesus from self-imposed danger is reflected in their conclusions about him, for they were saying he has lost his mind or he has lost his senses. Mary, of course, did not think that. Before Jesus was born, Mary had been told by the angel in Luke 1, 31 through 33, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So she knew exactly who he was. But Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Undoubtedly, they had been told by Mary and Joseph about their older half-brother. For the first 30 years of his life, while Jesus lived in Nazareth, his siblings observed him day after day. Everything he did was perfect. Can you imagine having a perfect sibling? <laughs> a reality that validated his identity, but may have frustrated his younger brothers and sisters, who could hardly match up to his standard. <laughs> the biblical record implies that he did not begin performing miracles until his ministry started when he was 30 years old. The only other time that we have any evidence was his, uh, when he was teaching the religious scholars when he was 12 years old in the temple. Uh, but he appeared like any other normal Jewish young man. We know the name of Jesus' half-brothers that are mentioned in Mark 6, 3, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. That verse also indicates that he had more than one half-sister and sisters, meaning that Jesus was one of at least seven children born to Mary. As a side note, the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity is a fabrication clearly rejected by the New Testament record. 
in Matthew 1.25 and 13 through 55 through 56. Growing up in the same family as Jesus, his siblings had witnessed his perfect obedience, but because of seemingly ordinary nature of his childhood, they did not believe him to be the Messiah. When Jesus left the family in Nazareth around the age of 30 and embarked on his public ministry, his siblings must have wondered what he was doing. When Jesus came back to Nazareth and rebuked his former neighbors so sharply that they tried to kill him, we read in Luke 6, 4, 4, Luke 4, 16, his brothers and sisters undoubtedly watched in shock. As Jesus' reputation spread and news about him reached Nazareth, their curiosity was probably matched by growing consternation and concern. Having heard about the oppressive nature of the crowds, they decided to wait no longer. It was time to rescue their older brother from himself. The phrase lost his mind or lost his senses translates a single Greek term meaning to lose one's mind, to be beside oneself, or to be insane. Members of Jesus' own family were convinced that he was no longer in control of his rational senses. In reality, the only thing irrational about Jesus was that they had mistakenly what they mistakenly con concluded about him. Though his brothers did not believe in him yet, their unbelief was only temporary. They would come to embrace him in faith after his resurrection. And we learn about that in Acts 1.14 and 1 Corinthians 15.7. In fact, Jesus' brother James would become a leader in the Jerusalem church. And both James and Jude or Judas would pen epistles in the New Testament. At this time, however, the concern for him, perhaps mixed with a sense of pity and family duty, they determined to go to Capernaum to bring him safely back to Nazareth. Now for the liar, the accusation of Jesus' foes that we read in Mark 3, 22 through 30. The members of Jesus' immediate family were not the only ones who journeyed to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Israel's religious elite, scribes who came down from Jerusalem, also had a keen interest in finding Jesus, though not with the intent of saving his life. Their short-term strategy was to slander Jesus in order to turn public opinion against him. Ultimately, they wanted him dead. And we read that in Mark 3, 6. Knowing they could not deny the reality of his miraculous supernatural power, they devised a smear campaign that would call into question the source of it. And boy, don't we see that in our politics today. You can't deny what someone has done that is accomplished, but in order for that person not to get elected again, you just smear him and smear him over and over and try to convince people he's not the kind of person that you might think he might be. According to Matthew 12, 22 through 23, the parallel passage to Mark, the response of the scribes and Pharisees was specifically related to a healing miracle performed by Jesus. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute, man's, the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David. Can he? Jesus demonstrated his authority over both spiritual realm of demons 
and the physical realm of disease in this one dramatic act of healing. The results were immediate, complete, and undeniable. A formerly blind, mute, and demon-possessed man was instantly cured, and the crowd saw it. They were astonished by the display of his supernatural deliverance and could not help but pose the obvious question, openly wondering if Jesus was indeed the messianic son of David. Their reaction soon reached the ears of the ever-vigilant religious leaders. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Bezebel, the ruler of the demons. That was in Matthew 12, 24. Unable to deny that Jesus, what Jesus had done, because too many people had seen it, the apostate religious leaders attempted to discredit Jesus by attributing his powers to Satan. And I use the word apostate there. An apostate is somebody that's turned away from the truth. And that's what the Jewish system, the Jewish leaders, they have turned away from the truth, as we know. Uh, you know, it was a right work, uh, a works righteousness system that they had developed. From that point, Mark picks up the story, noting that the scribes had come down from Jerusalem. Though Capernaum was north of Judea, the Galilean town sat at a much lower elevation, 700 feet below sea level than Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level, meaning that the route to Capernaum required a downhill from Jerusalem. Aware of Jesus' popularity and looking for opportunities to undermine his credibility, a delegation of scribes journeyed from Israel's capital city to keep an eye on Jesus' ministry. And to think about how intent they were on this, that was a 100 uh, miles. That was a 100-mile trek. And, and the reason it was 100 miles is because they had to go around Samaria because no Jew would walk through Samaria. And they wanted, uh, and this just shows you how deep-seated their antagonism was and how motivated they were to the mod motivation of Jesus. His unprecedented popularity made him an ever-increasing threat to their own authority. We can't have anybody going after our power. You know, their egos are in their way. Their pride is in the way. So they came to Capernaum intent on destroying Jesus, dogging his steps in order to build their case against him. Hearing the crowd seriously consider the possibility that Jesus might be the Messiah, the scribes and the Pharisees panicked. Trapped in a dilemma of their own creation, they resorted to make preposterous personal attacks, saying he is possessed by Bezebel, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Such detestable accusations oozing with disgusting wickedness were designed to dissuade the crowds from believing in Jesus. If they could position him as a representative of Satan, the religious leaders knew they could poison the multitudes against him. Boy, is that a political strategy? The Pharisees and the scribes, blinded by their own arrogance, hated Jesus because he openly denounced their hypocritical system of man-made tradition and works righteousness. Considering themselves the guardians of the Jewish doctrinal purity, they could not imagine that Israel's long-awaited deliverer would vigorously oppose them. 
Thus, even with the evidence of Jesus' Messiahship was obvious for all to see, they willfully, willfully rejected him and adamantly insisting he was possessed by, the Satan, by Satan. In answer to the question posed by the multitudes, Jesus' enemies insisted that he was actually the direct opposite of the son of David. He was not Christ, they said, but the servant of Bezabel, the ruler of the demons. The name Bezabel originally referred to Baal Zebul, meaning Baal the prince, the chief deity of the pagan gods of the Philistines in the city of Ekron. Expressing their disdain, the Israelites mockingly, mockingly called him Bezabub, meaning Lord of Flies or Lord of the Dung. By the first century, Bezabub or Bezabub had become the name for Satan, which was kind of a slang word that had developed out of that, which is what the Pharisees intended when they associated the name with Jesus. Jesus' power could only be explained as coming from one of two sources, God or Satan. When Jesus claimed to be from God, I and the Father are one, in John 10, 30, the leaders called him a liar, who, whose power belonged instead to the prince of darkness. Though they claimed to be authority, authoritative spokesmen for God, in reality, they were just, they were the ones under Satan's power. In John 8, 41, in 44 and 45, we read, You are doing the deeds of your father, Jesus said. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. And Jesus continued, you are, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And the, Jesus says, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Knowing that the Pharisees were saying about him, Jesus called the crowd to himself and began speaking to them in parables. And this is like one of the things that's like, you know, Jesus just knows the right thing to say at the right time. The, the Lord often used parables to obscure truth for the unbelievers. But on this occasion, however, Jesus's analogies were clear for all to understand, exposing, exposing the ludicrous nature of his enemy's accusations. Verse 23 that we read, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. The allegation of the scribes was a logical absurdity. It was almost idiotic. It is self-evident that any kingdom or royal house that war against itself is destined for collapse. Applied to the spiritual realm, the principle holds equally true. If Satan were casting out his own agents or destroying his own works, then his kingdom would hopelessly be divided. Jesus' point was obvious. Though the kingdom of darkness is inherently chaotic and disorderly, the devil does not deploy his agents to fight against each other. And it made me think, you know, why is the kingdom of darkness inherently chaotic and disorderly? Because, you know, Satan, unlike God, isn't omnipresent. 
he can't be talking to all his domain at one time. The fact that Jesus spent his earthly minister exposing, confronting, and rebuking and casting out demons provided self-evident proof that he was not empowered by Satan. Everything Jesus did from his healing miracles to his gospel preaching was opposed to Satan's interests. Since the very reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. John, 1 John 3, 8. The, who, the one who does sin is of the devil because the devil sins from the beginning. The Son of God was manifested for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Obviously, Satan never would have authorized, empowered such a cataclysmic attack on his own kingdom. For the Pharisees and scribes to make this claim, as I said, was idiotic or ridiculous. The true explanation for Jesus' authority over demons was not that he was empowered by Satan, but rather he had power over Satan. As Jesus told the multitudes in verse 27, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. The point of Jesus' illustration would have been obvious to his listeners. If anyone wished to take the property from a tyrant or a warrior, he must first overpower him. In Jesus' analogy, the strong man, of course, represented Satan, and his property consists of both demonic forces and those oppressed under his control, human beings. Only someone stronger than Satan could enter his domain, bind him, dispense his agents, and liberate the captives from his kingdom of darkness. That Jesus wielded such power proved that he came from God, since God alone possesses that kind of absolute authority. For the Pharisees and the scribes to attribute the power to Jesus of Satan rather than the Holy Spirit was the highest form of blasphemy and placed them in eternal jeopardy. And here we look at the part about the unforgivable sin. Jesus' warning was solemn and severe. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Any sin is forgivable, including irreverent words spoken against God and, and the Lord Jesus, with one notable exception, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Though these verses have been the source of much, I think, unnecessary confusion, the context makes it clear that Jesus had a specific offense in mind when he warned his listeners about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In his incarnation, Jesus was perfectly submissive to his Father and wholly empowered by the Holy Spirit. At every point of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit was actively at work. The Spirit was there at his birth, his baptism, his temptation, his ministry, his miracles, his death, and his resurrection. He was always operating under the Spirit's full control as he walked in perfect obedience to his Father. Those who had seen the overwhelming evidence of the Spirit's power in Jesus' ministry yet remained utterly unwilling to accept Jesus as the Son of God choosing instead to attribute the spirits empowering the work of Satan, were guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Though they had witnessed him 
heal all kinds of diseases, cast out scores of demons, and proclaim a gospel of divine forgiveness, Jesus' enemies nonetheless accused him of being demon-possessed. They were saying, he has an unclean spirit. In the face of every possible evidence of the spirits working through Jesus, they stubbornly refused to believe. They had permanently hardened their hearts against their own Messiah. Consequently, because of their rejection was final in the face of sufficient evidence, there was no possibility of forgiveness. And this one commentator, William Hendrickson, in his, in his exposition of the book of Matthew, he said this, For penitence, they substituted hardening. For confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleadings and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. For the religious leaders of Israel to conclude that the Messiah was demon-possessed counterfeit constituted the ultimate act of apostasy, of falling away, because it was clear their final because it was their final conclusion about Jesus, they were guilty of an eternal sin. Even after this occasion, in spite of Jesus' warning, the religious leaders continued to maintain he was empowered by Satan. Those who blasphemed against the Holy Spirit cut themselves off from God's saving grace through their own hard-hearted unbelief. Uh, let's uh, open our book to Hebrews chapter 2. Did I say open our books, open our, Bi open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2? Verse 1 through 4. For this, re this is 40 years later, written by the writer of Hebrews. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There in verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And now jump down to Hebrews 6. Turn to Hebrews 6. Verse 4, for in this case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, 
it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. And, and now turn over to chapter 10, 26. You know, some people say Matthew 7, 21 is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. This is, uh, is number one or two, depending on your opinion. But verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire, which will consume their adversaries will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying Thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I didn't put that reference in your handout because I thought of it afterwards. So who else had full revelation as in rejected the Lord and is damned to hell? Well, let's put, I'll ask the question another. What other beings had full revelation and rejected the Lord and is damned to hell. The demons, right? I mean, they, <laughs> they were at the throne of God. Some other examples. You know, I, I got up in the middle of the night and I read the first 15 chapters of Exodus and seeing how all the miracles of the 10 plagues, if you will, if you want to call those miracles, with Moses in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and hardened. And then God finally hardened his own heart and willfully rejected all the evidence that God was God. And then the other way around, Rahab, the prostitute, the words of the crossing of the Red Sea, the defeat of some of the tribes as the Israelites were moving towards the Promised Land had reached Rahab and in, in Joshua's times and believed that that was the real God that was acting. And when he, she protected the two spies that came in to figure out how to attack the town, she asked, hey, we know that you come from God, and I hope your Lord looks to me kindly for protecting you. And that wish was granted to her because she believed, and she became part of Jesus's lineage. And she's in the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. So we, could, we always have to pray for people. We can't know whose hearts harden 
and if they've really walked away because we don't really know if anybody's really had the full knowledge and comprehended it and willfully rejected it. And so we have to be careful. We have to reach out to everybody all the time. You know, with this conflict in Israel, some of us have discovered this, uh, the founder of Masas, one of the co-founders of Hamas, his son became a Christian 25 years ago. So we can reach out to anybody all the time. That's our job here. That's why we're still here is to reach out to everyone. And then in 1 John 2.19, it reminds us, they, unbelievers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Because some people associate with the church, and then all of a sudden, someday you don't see them, and they never come back to church again. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they are not of us. So... Uh, those are some of the uh, evidences, but we have to be careful. We're not the judge. We leave that to God. Okay, the last segment. Lord, the acknowledgement of Jesus' followers, verses 3, 31 through 35. Having left Nazareth to find Jesus, Jesus' mother and his brothers finally arrived in Capernaum. In light of the fact that Mary believed in Jesus, her coming was likely motiv motivated by a desire to protect the Son of God. Jesus' half-brothers, however, are convinced he'd lost his mind. They came to rescue Jesus from the massive crowds that threatened to smother him and likely intent on taking him back to Nazareth with them. From outside the house, they sent word to him and called him. Inside, Jesus was addressing the crowd that was sitting around him when they said to him, Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Accepting the interruption... Jesus responded in a way that was utterly unexpected. Again, here we see the prof profoundity of, of, of the Lord and must have surprised those who heard him, answering them. And he said, who are my mother and brothers? And Jesus' question was not born out of ignorance. Of course, he knew who his earthly family members were, nor did he intend any level of disrespect or antagonism toward his mother and brothers, whom he clearly loved that we see in John 19, 26. Jesus simply used this real-life interpretation to teach a transcendent truth, a spiritual truth, to his followers who gathered around him. Answering his own question, Jesus looked about those who were sitting around him. Behold, my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brothers and sisters and mother. The Lord's point was that only relationship to him that matters eternally is not physical, but spiritual. His spiritual family. Remember, we're adopted into the family of God. There's no other religion that preaches that. We are adopted. His spiritual family is compromised of those who have, are comprised of those having a relationship with him through faith. As he earlier explained to Nicodemus, it's not an earthly birth that makes us part of the family of God, but being born from above. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees who resisted and blasphemed the Holy Spirit by rejecting the Son of God, genuine disciples are careful to do the will of God by honoring Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. As Jesus explained in 640, 
This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself, I myself will raise him up on the last day. On another occasion in, occasion in Judea, when a ex, woman exclaimed to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus responded similarly, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Only those who heed God's word will be eternally blessed. That words with testimony of the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew 17, 5. As Mark had already noted, Jesus' families regarded him as a lunatic. Meanwhile, members of the religious elite regarded him as a liar, accusing him to be in league with, with Satan. But the followers of Jesus who belonged to his spiritual family embraced him as their Lord. They obeyed the will of the Father, which is that the sinners would believe in the Son, to whom the Holy Spirit bears witness and receives eternal life. Those who truly recognize that Jesus is Lord responds with eagerness to obey him. True conversion has always been marked by obedience to the word of God and submission to the authority of Christ. As Jesus explained in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And a few chapters later in John 14, 50, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. By contrast, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 4. Embracing the Lordship of Jesus Christ is more than lip service. In the presence of the God, in presence, in the essence of the Christian life and the sure characteristics of those who are part of the family of God, another commentator, John Stott, wrote, In order to follow Christ, we have to deny ourselves, to crucify ourselves, to lose ourselves. The full inexorable demand of Jesus Christ is now laid bare. He does not call us to a sloppy half-heartedness, but to a vigorous, absolute commitment. He calls us to make him our Lord. The astonishing idea is current in some circles today that we can enjoy the benefits of Christ's salvation without accepting the challenge of his sovereign lordship. Such as an unbalanced notion is not to be found in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord! Amen. Is the earliest known creed in Christianity. And that's why I focused on that in our songs today. In the days when imperial Rome was pressing its citizens to say Caesar is Lord, these words had a dangerous flavor. But Christians did not flinch. They could not give Caesar their first allegiance because they had already given it to Emperor Jesus. God had exalted his son, Jesus, far above all principalities and power and invested him with a rank superior to every rank that before him that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The eternal destiny of every sinner is determined by what the person does with Jesus Christ. Those who ultimately regard him as either a lunatic or a liar will spend eternity apart from him in hell. But those who do the will of the God by embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are promised eternal life.
And as we know in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There, as members of the family of God, we will worship our risen King forever. Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to worship together in the family of God. We thank you for everything you've done for us, and we will thank you forever and praise you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.